Welcome. Hi. I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Morning, everyone. Hope you're having a great week. As good as it can be, given that uh, New Zealand, or at least Auckland, will probably still be in level four by the time this is published on Wednesday. Potentially Wellington will be too, and hopefully the South Island has um, sort of come out of the highest restriction of lockdown. But I'm recording this on Sunday, so who knows? At any rate, at least you can spend the next hour or so disassociating yourself with current affairs by tuning into my interview with Jeff Rothschild. Now, Jeff is a registered dietitian with a master's degree in nutritional science and a board certified specialist in sports dietetics. Jeff and I are chatting today about his current research, his doctoral studies, looking at pre-training and performance nutrition and the impact this has on fuel utilization. Jeff's research is under the guidance of Dr. Dan Plews, who is the Ironman age group world champion, as you know, at uh, the Sports Performance Research Institute in New Zealand, Sprins in Auckland, and is currently conducting trials looking at the effect of pre-exercise nutrition on the adaptations to endurance training. And so Jeff and I spend a large section of today's talk discussing his original findings in the survey that he conducted to find out what athletes were actually doing. Surprisingly, there was not a lot of research out there and then delving into some of these pre-trials that he's conducted, looking at the changes that those nutritional inputs have on adaptations to endurance exercise. And I'll say that some of Jeff's findings have certainly influenced how I approach pre-training nutrition for myself and also with clients. Jeff also is a clinician practitioner. He works with Olympians, triathletes competing at Kona and professional tennis players, as well as people just trying to complete their first triathlon, feel better, improve their energy levels and learn how they should be eating to achieve their goals. In addition to talking about Jeff's current research, we talk a little bit about his background and particularly Jeff's former life as a music producer, rubbing shoulders with some of my favourite musicians. So it was real fun to talk to Jeff about that as well. Before we crack on into the show though, just want to let you know that if you are picking this up on a Wednesday or Thursday, you still have time until Thursday evening to jump on board Monday's Matter Spring Edition. We are kicking off Monday 30th of August. And so I need to cut off registration for that uh, on Thursday to allow enough time for you guys to get all your ducks in a row and sort your shopping, figure out the nuts and bolts of the program and um, introduce yourself and kind of get familiar with the group because we are kicking off, as I said, on Monday and I'm so looking forward to it. Cannot wait. In addition to that though, of course you can always jump on board the recipe access portal that I have which is a great way to support the podcast as well 
so you get access to all of the recipes that I put online in addition to the Facebook group and the ability for you to ask me some of your pertinent nutrition questions and I've had a number of signups over the last few weeks with that since we've made it available which is fantastic. So without further ado though please enjoy my conversation that I have with Jeff Rothschild. on. Jeff, good morning. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thanks. Happy Great. to chat with you. Yeah. Great. Hey, thanks so much for taking the time. And, you know, obviously I want to do a good dive into your current research and just some of the things you're, you're finding with regards to metabolism, fuel substrate use and, and endurance athletes, obviously, you know. Um, but actually, Jeff, as I understand it, you almost had a previous life before you were a dietitian, a, a researcher and in, in things like that. So, yeah. um, you know, did you not brush shoulders with some of the biggest names in music? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Um, the word, word gets around. Um, yeah, I used to be a, a recording engineer, mix engineer, drummer. So basically, mm-hmm. for someone that you know that doesn't know what that is, that basically the, the person who twists the knobs and hits the button when someone's making a record. Kind of making yeah. it sound the way it sounds, and and like you want actually hitting hitting record so to speak, and then shaping the sounds to uh, to to sound like what we what we hear. But yeah, I did that with a lot of uh, rock and pop bands. Uh, I guess I can name a few: uh, Bon Jovi and Rod Stewart and Santana. Take that. Um, I mean, it, it, it kind of goes on. It's I had a really enjoyable and and really good career for a while. But cycling was something I had gotten into uh, as a hobby and learning about nutrition and I just found it so interesting and, and for a while I was happy just to leave it as a you know a hobby it's um you know the, the studio day would be from like noon to midnight but that way I could I mean I could go for bike rides in the mornings and you know things like that and I was enjoying that but uh it got to the point where I wanted to uh, you know just pursue it and I got a little bit I got progressively burnt out doing what I, what I was doing and, and was progressively more interested in in nutrition and and so I left that career and and really started from scratch uh, I guess no pun intended. Um, and yeah, went back to school, did a master's degree in nutrition, and and literally, uh, you know, there was a about a two week span where I was on, literally on a helicopter with Bon Jovi, which wasn't certainly wasn't an everyday experience, but yeah. uh, nonetheless, that was able to to do things like that. And then a couple weeks later, being sitting in like a a, a community college chemistry class, um, you know, that that was quite the quite the turn the, the change. But I I really enjoyed, I welcomed it, and I enjoyed it, and I've just I. I enjoyed this process so much of learning learning about all, all this stuff yeah that's awesome and it's such a I think it's such a courageous move to sort of take from a you know a successful sort of career to yeah. like realizing your passion and sort of taking that risk to turn that passion into another career because one of the things you often hear is you know you might really love something but once you start studying it that's mm. a surefire way to sort of like kill a bit of that yeah yeah for me it's uh, I think that the, the passion for the enjoyment is, is in the learning and the process of it and so yeah. the growing process and the learning process and so it's um um that that uh yeah that that that's what i enjoyed about music and the first bunch of years i was able to really keep growing and, and progressing and and um and then it kind of got to the point where i just felt like it was a bit stagnant and there's yeah. always something you could learn but it just felt like i was kind of plateaued and 
wasn't learning. And, um, and so, yeah, this, this career has allowed me to do that, certainly in, in several different phases. First, I was doing a master's degree and, and became a dietitian and then, you know, building a career, um, a private practice, and then deciding mm -hmm. to kind of come almost another sidestep, if you will, to, to come back and do my PhD. And um, I still do see some people um, remotely, but it's not the full-time thing that, you know, I'm spending most of my time doing the research we're working on. Yeah. And so you were in um, private practice in LA, is that correct? Yeah. 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 What was the climate for your services like over there? Just as a reason, uh, like I'm always really interested because, you know, here in New Zealand, where as a nutritionist and dietitian, like unless you are in that hospital setting, mm. for a lot of people, it is either that you are, you know, you, you see as many clients as possible and get burnt out or you see clients for half the time and then you spend the other half of the time doing some sort of part-time like role. What's it like? What was it like over there? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Uh, I did also, in, in addition to just doing nutrition consulting, I did also exercise testing. So it was kind yes. of a, it kind of set me up nicely for, um, you know, the things I'm doing now, of yeah. course. Um, so people that would, you know, come in for a VO2 max test or a lactate test and things like that. So I was able to, obviously it's very, uh, intertwined with the nutrition side, especially when you're looking at things like substrate oxidation and people are curious how much fat they're burning and things like that. So you really can mm. bridge those two. But it was, um, I guess, enough of a, a variety that, you know, my days, sometimes I was, you know, doing more of the testing and some days, you know, just sitting kind of with, with clients. So, um, um, yeah, I think certainly a lot of people work in, in hospital settings and things like that. For me, um, it's definitely certainly hard to build a, a private practice, as I'm sure you know. Um, you've done a fantastic job uh, of that. Um, but yeah, it's just a slow, slow kind yeah. of grind and, and yeah. yeah. Okay, so I don't know how much you want to talk about this, but don't worry, I won't linger. But I do have a couple of questions. One, um, so you've just mentioned a couple of my favorite artists, oh. particularly John Bon Jovi. Uh. Uh, uh, so who was your favorite to work with? And who, like they all look like they're in peak shape. And, and I mean, obviously, you know, if I'm thinking back in the 70s and 80s and you know, all the drugs and alcohol and stuff, but, you know, the, the ones that, I, that you mentioned, I sort of think to myself, they've just got to keep it together because they just look, you know, aged but as fit as they did when, or even mm. fit than in the younger years yeah well um you know with bon jovi was some of my favorite people to work with i mean that the, the whole group not just john bon jovi but the the band and the whole organization was i made I think four or five records with them um and yeah it's that i think they would kind of joke about it. i mean it's definitely different from the 80s i mean there's now it's like sparkling water and you know there's chiropractors <laughs> around and you know things like that um so they yeah. definitely take you have to take that seriously uh, particularly as you age and if you're trying to run around on the stage. Um, take that with some of my favorite people to work with as well. Um, really enjoyed, uh, I spent a few summers in London making two, uh, kind of this comeback, for, anyway, for, the, for those that know the group, uh, mm -hmm. kind of their comeback records. Uh, yeah. So um, that was a lot of enjoy, really enjoyable. And I, a lot of, I, I enjoyed a lot of times the process. I mean, you're in a small room with someone for you know 12 hours a day for anywhere between one one week to several months mm -hmm. and so it's kind of like going on a, a car road trip with someone you see the good and the bad and all sides of people and just an interesting um bonding experience that you don't get um yeah just when you're inter interacting with people on a short you know in, in short spurts totally and actually what you just described with that sort of 12 hours a day type thing reminds me of what athletes get when they go on training camps you know exactly three to five days they're just in it with all other athletes you're all got this shared sort of vision and um it i yeah i can see that you had a real really good bonding experience um jeff now you mentioned that you know you did cycling you know cycling's your sort of sport have you like always been a cyclist have you sort of dabbled in other in other sports just um now growing up uh, i was really into tennis and then um you know playing in tournaments and things like that and then in kind of my my early 
late teens and early 20s was really focused on music so that was kind of I was very inactive actually and then kind of um, in my at some point as I was doing the music I just like I said, started cycling and uh, I had gotten back into tennis as well but um, cycling was just something I kind of just randomly picked up initially as to, to commute around and then I had a friend who was a, a, a road cyclist and so we started going on some rides and that kind of seemed like a lot of fun and, and believe it or not Los Angeles is a fantastic place for cycling unbelievable riding out there um, amazing yeah so it's got to be spoiled on these great roads and, and hills and things like that yeah and is that where your sort of interest in nutrition grew from uh yeah yeah i think so you know understanding start, starting to get healthier i mean again in my say early 20s i i just didn't really think about nutrition one way or the other and then and then really started seeing how much different it, it made me feel and it's kind of a typical story of people especially among dietitians you kind of see how much it impacts your own well-being in life and then uh makes you want to learn more and then share that with others. Yeah, sure. And so you went on to do your master's. What did you focus on in your master's? That was, you know, the, definitely nutritional science. Um, and, and at that point, I was really into um, fasting, time-restricted eating windows. Mm. And, and that, that was kind of the my area of interest, and more, more so than the sports um, the sports as well, but, but particularly with food timing and how that affects our body clock and things like that. Mm. So from that, were there any sort of key kind of learning moments for you with your, yeah, with what you found? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that really kind of um, cemented in me that or the, the, um, the importance of food timing. So mm. what you eat certainly matters, but I think everyone focuses. Now it's, it's becoming more aware of, people are becoming more aware that when you eat is, is important too. But um, this was, you know, let's say 10 years ago, it, it wasn't time-restricted eating was really an early thing. It was just kind of... You know, a little bit of research, alternate day fasting, there had been some studies, but it's all kind of fasting in general was kind of new and, and circadian biology was had definitely been established, but but not, you know, nearly to the degree of things that have come out in the past for, let's say, five years showing that, you know, time-restricted eating windows, let's say, um, are, are a, a thing that people can do and they're often beneficial and we talk about the nuances there, but, but let's say an early time-restricted eating window compared to a late window has different effects. You know, looking at shift workers and and how that affects things, and you know, there's there's really so much there that that is, people um, that focus solely on macros and calories uh, are just really missing a, a huge um, lever, I guess, if you will. Mm, mm. And then, so how did it come to be that you were working in LA? You'd, you'd completed your masters. That now you're in Auckland, New Zealand. Like, <laughs> yeah. what sort of like drew you to? Um, to cross to the other side of the world. Yeah, yeah, no, um, that's a, a good question. I was, uh, you know, you know, working and I, I, I stayed, I, I stayed kind of dabbling in research, and it was certainly something that was a, a big interest to me. And I did a few studies, um, like, like in triathletes, in my in, in the place I was working at. Um, but I, I felt like I definitely wanted to take the next step. And, and part of it was, um, you know, let's say ho certain research questions I was curious about. Um, I could either wait for someone else to answer them and hopefully figure out the answers that I wanted to know or I could actually just go try to figure them you know try to do that and um, mm. chose the latter and, and uh, just something I'd kind of wanted to do and it finally just seemed like the right time um, to, to kind of take that additional step uh, as far as being here yeah um, there's a you know I wanted somewhere uh, that had a, a great reputation like somewhere who's where the work um, I, I was aware of from there and people doing great applied research. Um, so I was certainly very familiar with my, my supervisors, uh, Dan Plews and Andy Kilding. They, you know, I'd followed their work without knowing them. Um, and so I was certainly very impressed. And um, um, yeah, I, I wanted somewhere that was really applied and in a 
a nice place to live wouldn't hurt, you know. Mm. Um, and so just kind of all the things that I was looking for, uh, being able to kind of self self direct the project, self um, direct the um, the topic. So some PhDs, as, as you certainly know, are, are kind of you're slotting into like here's a research question that's being answered. Um, mm. So if you want to do that, fine. Um, but in this case, uh, in this environment, there's a little bit more flexibility to, to design the type of research you want to do, presuming mm. it's within the umbrella of you know what the the, uh, the place does. Um, but that the, the things that I was interested in seemed like a really good fit with Dan and Andy and, and the you know sprints in general. Mm. Was it surprising to you, Jeff, that you know your area of research was relatively untapped? Because to be honest, when I came across your proposal, I was surprised that and, and I think it and and I don't know how you feel about it, but I feel like it's because there are so many different messages out there of of yeah. what to eat before training and, and everyone has has an opinion that you know, you sort of think, well, surely that's based on some kind of like really solid yeah. foundation of science. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, exactly. That, that there's, if you if you listen to people talk, practitioners or or you know coaches and and athletes, like it sounds like we know exactly what does what you know and what yeah. we should be doing. And then when you really look into, like you said, where that that foundation is, it's it's very. Um, there's just not a lot, actually. Mm. We know a lot about the acute response to exercise. Like if you have carbohydrate during or before exercise, kind of what happens. It's, that's, that's been kind of, well, I'd say, fairly well studied. Um, but as far as these longer-term adaptations, so should you eat, you know, basically, for, I guess for those that don't know, my, my PhD research is kind of figuring out what, what should you eat before exercise mm. in the context of getting the most out of your endurance training sessions and your endurance training adaptations. So, yeah, the, the, um, the, the, the let's say, assumed knowledge is... is um, shouldn't be we, we shouldn't make so many assumptions about what we think we know yeah yeah and I mean someone would argue that most of nutrition is really based on that sort of you know assumption yeah. but I mean you're doing a fabulous job of sort of actually doing the trials to help make a much more informed information or foundation for you know what we can tell our clients and one of your first studies was obviously a survey done and mm. like I believe was it like 1950 people or something yeah it was quite exactly a massive group so yeah. do you want to sort of talk us through what that survey was designed to find but also what did you find yeah yeah so so generally like I mean I guess just for, for a PhD we kind of have this this research question and, and you kind of come at it from a few different angles to try to get some cohesive body of, of you know, work um, so that first part of this then is is you know, if the question is, if we want to know like, what should we eat for exercise, essentially, we want, you know, an interesting part of that or a, a good thing to know is what are people actually doing? Like what are mm -hmm. endurance athletes all around the world actually eating before exercise and what's dictating those decisions? How many people are doing fasted training? Again, you know, fasted training is something that's so commonly talked about, so commonly done, but like there was really no idea how many people actually do it. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we created a survey that was, you know, meant to be kind of short and easy and something that could be circulated Know, uh, really far around the world, and and so yeah, nineteen uh, nearly two thousand people um, completed that, and uh, yeah, we wanted to know yeah, what do you eat before a training and why essentially, and we separated things out and we looked at people's habitual dietary patterns and and their competitive level, how much they're training, when they're training, like if, if how much of their training is in the morning versus the afternoon, etc., um, and then we also split that into what do you eat before easy uh, or short sessions. So less than 90 minutes and, and what do you do before longer sessions because you know, it's probably a reason to think people would do something different. And then also, you know, do you eat differently before a short session or an easy session or a hard session? And all these kind of, we, we just kind of want get, to get to what's driving people to make the decisions um, that mm. they do. I guess the, the big kind of takeaways um, or the, and somewhat surprising things, I guess, for me were um, uh, that a lot of people do fasted training. Like, like uh, I'm just pulling up, I want, I want to not tell the wrong numbers here. Um, but uh, yeah, about two thirds of people 
of, of endurance athletes do at least some type of fasted training, which was, um, I guess, not super surprising, but I got a bit higher than I would think. Like um, if I th- if I just ask you, Jeff, with some of your clients, but also what you do, what, is that different from what you have seen in practice, or is that um, why you were surprised? Or well, I guess I just there was just no number. Like I didn't have any sense of like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I guess some people do, and some people don't, and some people have a little something. I mean, I guess it, it varies. So um, yeah, so yeah, about it was it was sixty three percent, and a little bit it was more more in females, or excuse me, more in males than females. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the reasons, what really then it gets to the, to what I think is interesting and what leads to our, our the next studies we've been doing is why do people train in the fasted state? Mm. And so the, the number one reason is u- utilizing fat as a fuel source. And then uh, oftentimes people will do it because of gut comfort and also just time constraints or convenience. So people just wake up early enough and they don't, they don't want to eat. But some people think it's beneficial in their training. Some people are doing it for weight loss. Some people then think it's not beneficial. Um, and so what, what, what we get to is some people do it because they think it's really helpful and it's going to help them burn more fat. And then some people avoid it because they think it's, it's not helpful and it's going to harm their training. Mm-hmm. And so I, I guess in some ways everyone can be right, but, but we, we thought, okay, there, there's, people have really strong feelings about this because we also asked on kind of their beliefs around these things. But um, these beliefs aren't, like we said before, they're not based on a whole lot of great evidence. Mm-hmm. And so these understanding what people are doing and why then can lead a, you know, let us um, set up the next couple of studies uh, that we're doing um, yeah. to, to try to answer some of these things. And was there any like gender difference as well or sex difference? Yeah, yeah there were sex differences across a lot of things, um, across the beliefs. So um, the, the number, so about 72% of males did fasted training, whereas about 54% of females. Pretty big difference there. Um, yeah. the, re- the reasons... Um, for females, it was more because of gut comfort um, and convenience, whereas the fat, uh, the males were more interested in, in utilizing fat as a fuel source. There was there was differences kind of across the board in all the in almost all these questions between sex and habitual diet was a big one too. So generally, this might not be surprising, but people on a lower carbohydrate diet do more fasted training. Mm. Um, that's never that kind of seems intuitive. It doesn't seem too surprising, but at the same time, it, we, we we never had a, a number. We kind of never. That's never really been as far as I knew studied. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to to see that um, because inherently being on a low carb diet shouldn't mean you do more fasted training. Like actually, like if the benefits are increased fat burning, then you you might you're going to get that from a low carb diet anyway. So you probably would need fat uh, fasted training even less if that was the benefit. So yeah, um, see that's interesting because you know when I'm thinking about the practical application of low carb, like it almost always comes alongside those kind of four strategies to help upregulate fat oxidation, and one mm-hmm. of which is to train in a fasted state. So to me, it sort of fits nicely within that sort of low carb paradigm. But I yeah. totally appreciate what you're saying. Like there's nothing if you're low carb anyway, you're going to have depleted glycogen stores, probably less of a need to do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and competitive level too. So there were some differences between like pro athletes versus recreational athletes, and um, mm. it was that was good to see kind of a, a snapshot of what a, a large amount of people are actually doing. Yeah, nice. And so you said that this helped inform the next stage of your research. So do you want to just describe where you went from there? Yeah, yeah. So then uh, a study that we published um, just a few weeks ago, I think now, um, it what that was was a an acute study, but a crossover study. So people, uh, we, we tested three different breakfast options before a, mm. a, the same workout. So either fasted training or a, a high carb breakfast or just a protein rich breakfast. So essentially a, a, pro, a scoop of protein powder and some peanut butter. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to see, does it affect things like fat burning? 
and and how about and as well as performance during interval training. So we had people do some 20 minutes of essentially moderate, easy to moderate cycling, so we can measure how much fat they're burning and, and, and things like that. And then we had them do uh, six by three minute intervals to to see what their their work capacity was, if there was a mm-hmm. difference. Because a lot of people think, okay, I'll do um, my easy sessions fasted, and I'm going to eat before my hard sessions because my performance will suffer. That was one of the things that we saw from the survey is that people avoid fasted training. Either they're going to get too hungry or their performance will suffer. And then people that say they do fasted training because either they want the fat oxidation um, or because of gut comfort. There were some other reasons too, but those were kind of the, the big things. And so we, could, we were able to test a lot of those, those things in this study. So what we found was as far as the fat oxidation, yeah, fasted training certainly burns more fat during that workout compared mm-hmm. with if you've had like a carbohydrate-rich breakfast. Mm-hmm. But also the, you know, the kind of the new thing that it's been shown a couple of times, but not as much, and that is protein allows you to burn almost as much fat as if you're fasted. So if you were hungry, but you didn't, you didn't want to eat a carb breakfast to, to, you know, um, to shut down your fat burning, then you could have a scoop of protein powder and with some peanut butter or something if you want. And still, so you essentially be fed a low carb breakfast and then still allows you to burn a lot of, a lot of fat. Mm. And what would be the advantage do you see of an athlete deciding to do that over and above just doing fasted training? Yeah, so for someone who's training about five or six hours a week, it probably wouldn't matter if they're doing okay. an hour of exercise a day. It, it, mm. it makes probably no real difference. For someone who's training 15, 20, 25 hours a week, they're accumulating a huge calorie deficit. Mm. And so if you can you know, stuff 300 calories in you know, before that workout where you're going to burn, even in an hour, a good, uh, you know, a strong athlete can burn 1,000 thousand calories pretty easily in an hour mm. that's going to help help obviously not uh, completely remove a deficit but it's going to help to kind of reduce your deficit that you're creating so that's yeah. one 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 benefit um getting enough protein um is you know a thing for sometimes it's a challenge for people so it's, it gives you a good opportunity to take in some protein yeah nice and what about like the work rate or performance measure there was there anything sort yeah of at there? so so there was no differences in performance that was, was a bit surprising although when we think about it um so, so like the watts during those three minute intervals were were essentially even. Mm. Carbohydrate would be expected to have a benefit if it was a longer, more glycogen depleting session. So, if it was like ninety minutes or longer, we might expect carbs to have an advantage. But you know, most people's kind of weekday workouts where they think, okay, this is a key session, so I'm going to eat before. It still might only be an hour, and there's there's no real need to eat before the workout. Mm. Um, if you want to, you can. So the big takeaway is, if you want to, you can, but you don't you don't have to. And it won't yeah. really sacrifice um, your performance if it's around an hour workout. Yeah, yeah. Also, people were equally hungry or equally less hungry um, on any of the three. So that, so hunger was not different in, in any case between the three conditions. So if you're hungry, so let's say when you wake up and you're hungry, you can still do the workout. At the end, you're going to be less hungry because actually mm. the workout will lower your appetite. And it mm. won't, you'll be, I guess, put it, put it differently. At the end of the workout, you'll be exactly this, as hungry as you would be if had you had you know, a few hundred calories of, of carbs or protein. Yeah, interesting. And as I understand it, you measured kind of post workout and not sort of subsequent hunger across the day. Is that yeah? Yeah, that's mm. true. So there, you know, there could have been some difference that showed up. But um, as far as this, this was more to say how people feel. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of because when after the workout, then it's time to eat. They can eat whatever they want. Totally. So they're equally hungry at the end of the workout if they've eaten or not eaten. Um, and it's only an hour. So again, there probably would be some differences if you had like a three hour ride and a three hour workout and you hadn't eaten and things like that. Mm. But and, and I try, you know, I, I think this, uh, the, the workout we had set up is kind of very, it's very practical. It's something that a cyclist might do, you know, warm up for 20 minutes and then do some intervals. And you know, that's, that's your kind of before work workout. Yeah, totally. Um, 
And I also think about it in terms of not necessarily just athletes, but there are a heap of, heap of people doing things like F45 and, you know, those yeah. kind of uh, – in CrossFit where you have some sort of like warm-up AM wrap or whatever and then do 20 minutes of work, you know? That's it, yeah, or any kind of spin mm. class or any, any kind of like hour-long workout. I mean, that kind of fits into a lot of people's schedules. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really up to you if you want to eat. But don't think, oh, I have to eat or my performance will suffer. Yeah. yeah. So, Jeff, like what – about the carbohydrate before exercise and I guess I ask this because someone who has come from like you studied nutrition science did your master's thought you knew it all and realized you know nothing and then kind of go on to the low carb think you know it all and then realize you know so you know you're always evolving as a practitioner right and you know we we certainly you know probably about five years ago I'm sure I would have said something like if you eat any sort of carbohydrate you're going to shut down your carbohydrate burning so Mm. What would I say now to an athlete who, you know, might be going out doing a workout that incorporates some high intensity, yet also want to, you know, get like, are they shutting completely shutting off fat oxidation? Like, what's the what's the story? Mm. Yeah, there? yeah, no, that's a good question, and um, yeah, like that question, that's you know, that's like what I was struggling with when I was a practitioner. These kind of questions, like, what do you tell people what to eat for exercise? I mean, if, if you want to, um, you can tell people what. You, a lot of people t- have very strong opinions, but when you, the more you learn, like you said, you realize we don't really know. And, and so mm. that's what kind of got me um, back to school here. Um, so to, to the question, well, sorry, specifically, what, what kind of workout would we be talking about? Yeah. So, so, you know, like if someone has carbohydrate before the workout, mm. is there a level to which? Oh, oh. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so th- this is actually a project I'm working on now um, to kind of figure this out a little bit more. But basically, you have to consider. So, if if we're just thinking about burning fat, like how much fat and carb you're burning, mm. um, we ought to consider the duration of exercise. So, the longer you go, the more you're going to rely towards fat. Mm. Um, the intensity that's going to change it. So, the higher intensity, you're going to rely more on carbs. Mm. Um, and then other factors like what you've eaten before exercise and your glycogen levels and things like that. But if we just think about the duration and, and intensity, if someone is doing a, a higher intensity workout, they're going to be burning carbs anyway. Yeah. Whether you've eaten or not. Mm. And if you're doing a low intensity workout, if you're going long enough, so, you know, I don't know, an hour, two hours, I mean, the longer you go, the more you're going to be reliant on fat, even if you've had a ton of carbs beforehand. Yeah. So it kind of depends. But to your question of if, let's just say it's that, that 20 or 30 minute of steady state exercise, what we found also was the difference between people was way bigger than the difference between the treatments. Interesting. So what that means is, you know, someone um, who's a a, uh, a very high fat burner, a Dan Plews type, would mm-hmm. be burning more fat, even carb fed, than someone else might be when they're fasted. Mm-hmm. And so that's also a consideration. So you're kind of the the other, let's say, the you're the makeup of of that person, and that that has to do with the training experience and and the, all these other factors. But as mm-hmm. far as how that affects what that exact meal before exercise affects um yeah it, it affects a little bit but but it's not going to like shut off all fat burning also the timing before the exercise probably matters um mm. in, in terms of fat oxidation and that is the longer the farther out you have it the more it's going to suppress your fat oxidation so if you have mm. uh, a bowl of oatmeal you know 90 minutes before exercise you're probably going to do a good job of, of kind of squashing down the fat oxidation if you have that same bowl 10 minutes before it's probably actually not going to do very much because it's got to take time to go into the system. And so um, it's still essentially being absorbed during that workout. 
So probably there, that that matters in terms of that question too. Then there's so so most people are interested in you know just burning fat. Like, like you've asked about, well, are you going to burn more fat or carbs? But then, you know, we think about wh why that is. And a lot of people, um, well, a lot of people think it's just going to come off your waistline, which it doesn't really work like that. As you know, it comes, you're burning a lot of intramuscular fats. And there's, there's reason we might want to burn more fat. But um, the, the, the reason to do training is we want these longer term adaptations, right? Yeah. Training adaptations. We want to make more mitochondria, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. the, then there's a question of, does um, a higher carbon take impair some of those adaptations? And the question is, uh, the, you know, the answer is maybe a little, um, but um, it's probably more uh, apparent at during shorter exercise and during lower intensity exercise. So mm -hmm. if you're going at an easy kind of a, a zone two, you know, um, long, easy ride, if you had like a giant pancake breakfast beforehand, maybe that you could be impairing some of the potential benefit from that. But if you're doing a really hard interval workout, um, actually, I, I don't see how any... Um, blunting of these adaptations if, if you're if you're if you're working hard enough essentially if you're kind of going into like let's just say any kind of hard workout where you really let it rip um mm. the the molecular signaling doesn't seem to be at least like the ampk signaling is something i've looked very closely at we have an interesting paper that's uh, in review at the moment um, and i'll like, be excited to share that one with you but anyway that if if you're causing enough disturbance inside your muscle mm. in terms of those type of adaptations i don't see why that would uh, blunt anything Okay, you mentioned AMPK signaling. Could you just oh, yeah. explain that to people who might not be so, familiar? Yeah, yeah. So, so when, when we exercise, a bunch of stuff happens in our muscle. And if we, to get fitter, essentially, there's this unbelievable symphony of, of changes that happen at the molecular level inside our, our muscles. Uh, things are moving around and talking to each other and, and, and going to different parts of the cell. And um, with the, the net effect, hopefully, being we make our, our muscles get fitter. Right? We do mm -hmm. exercise that's a little bit hard whether it's resistance training or endurance training, and it's a little bit hard, then our body responds a little bit and we get a little bit fitter each time. That's mm. the general adapt adaptive process. Mm. So what we can do is look at certain uh, types of these signals, the things that are kind of doing the, the orchestra conducting, if you will, inside the cells, and, and kind of see what's causing them to change. And, and you know, the, with the theory being uh, these change in response to a, an acute work workout, and then over time, these adaptations accumulate. Mm. So AMPK is one of these, one of the kind of more well-studied, you can think of it as like a nutrient sensor. When, when you have low energy, a low ATP availability, then this thing, it's like a fuel gauge that flips on and, and causes some other signaling to happen, that things that we generally would consider beneficial from an mm. endurance training standpoint. So all that is to say, if we're doing, um, if we look at that signaling and we say it's not influenced, if, it's, if you're doing a hard workout, it's going to cause this signal to rise and do yeah. and cause these little adaptations that we expect and we want we want to get from a workout. Yeah, uh, and if we're fasted, will it and like if we do fasted training versus say taking on the protein, is there no difference in that AMP case? Um, pro uh, that probably not. That, that it's actually you could point to some that say yes and some that say no, but um, probably um, the best sense I, I I can give you of it would be that. If the workout is hard enough, it won't matter mm -hmm. anyway. And mm -hmm. if there's an easy, if it's an easy or low intensity workout, um, the glycogen might matter. Um, muscle glycogen probably matters more than if you're fasted or not fasted. Mm. So um, I guess as a little sidestep for people to make sure we're on the same page. Overnight, when, we've, when we're overnight fasted, our muscle glycogen isn't really any different from when we went to sleep, but mm -hmm. our liver glycogen is what's depleted. Mm. So if, if you go to sleep, with the muscle glycogen, you know, normal, let's say on, if you're on a normal diet or if it's low if you're on, and you're on a low-carb diet, then that's how you're going to wake up. And that's going to have more of an influence 
than whether you're fed or fasted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, awesome. Um, on that then, does it like does it, I can't? This is a bit of a tangent, but does it matter what people eat before they race? If that's you know from a well, glycogen perspective or well, liver yeah, glycogen? Yeah, from a liver glycogen, it would. Mm. And so we'd want. I mean, that's kind of the thing for um, whether you're high or low carb. You know, you you have your you've let's say you've carb loaded and whatever that means to you, but when you go to sleep the night before a race, your, your carb stores are at a some level and they're going to wake up, mm. like I said, the same level in your muscles, but your liver will be a bit depleted. So the thing that, you know, it, the, the benefit um, or the purpose, I should say, of, of the morning meal is to kind of top up your liver more mm. so than your muscles. Your muscle glycogen, that work has already been done the day or days before. It's mm. the liver that you just want to have a little top up. Yeah, nice. Hey, you know, like when I saw the results of your study, I thought it was – it it totally changed my, um, or it made me feel far more confident about recommending people eat before exercise and also what to eat before mm. exercise. How we sort of got into this space was looking at Bob Sieberhor's work mm. on metabolic efficiency. And yeah. whilst he actually in this, in, you know, his original work wasn't actually based on low carb, but for whatever reason, it sort of aligned with the, the whole concept of reducing down carbohydrate load to help upregulate that fat oxidation. So yeah. I'd always actually kind of put him in that low carb camp, not realizing mm. that he sort of went that way a few years later. Mm. Um, so I wonder what influence having protein and carbs together might have, say like a banana in your protein shake might have mm. to, you know, fat oxidation and stuff like that. I know you, we can only speculate. I yeah. Well, that, that, that kind of gets to then our next study, the thing we have going now. And if, if there's anyone that is interested in any athletes, we are certainly looking for athletes to participate. Um, well, let, let me take a uh, get another sidestep. Well, so that sh- study we we're just talking about that showed us an acute bout of exercise. So we showed basically your fat oxidation will be higher if you're fasted or if you've had protein, and your performance will basically be the same regardless of what you've had. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't answer the question of okay, well, I'm going to do two or three, uh, you know, these interval sessions a week over many weeks and months and years. So is there a difference for my longer term adaptations? Mm-hmm. At the same time, a lot of people think okay, I'm going to do my low intensity sessions fasted, like I said, to try to increase fat burning. Um, and, and, and so, um, you know, that, that's the approach I want to take, but does that affect, does that, you know, how how does that influence these adaptations over time? Mm -hmm. So what we're doing now is we're looking at uh, a mixed training. So three, three weeks of training following one of those three breakfasts, except, Mm um, now we're looking at the, so again, it's a carb rich breakfast, which is basically like a sports drink and, and some, some toast and jam or some, you know, something along those lines um, the, or the protein. Yeah, I think so. Uh, <laughs> a protein breakfast, so protein powder with, um, you know, peanuts, peanut butter, something, something like that, or fasted training. Yeah. And so we have people doing four low intensity sessions per week and two interval sessions per week. That okay. breakfast that I described is before the four low intensity sessions per week. So if mm-hmm. you're in the protein group, you're only going to have the protein powder before this low intensity training. Mm-hmm. And if you're in the fasted group, et cetera. And then the two interval sessions per week are everyone's having a standardized breakfast. Nice. So, yeah, it basically allows, you know, we, we, we don't want, one of the problems with a lot of the other studies is they're either like they're only going to have people do low intensity training or it's an only an interval training study. I mean, this is, again, more likely what people are doing. They, they think, mm. okay, I'm going to eat before my interval sessions. And then my, my low intensity training, I want to be, let's say, fasted or with, you know, the low carb breakfast or something like that. And so, uh, yeah, we're going to see. You know, how does this affect like people having carbs before all of, all of their low intensity training? Does that actually, is it any different? I mean, I, we expect everyone to get fitter over these three yeah. weeks. So again, if yeah. you're listening and you're curious, this is a three week training plan designed to make you fitter, both in terms of your aerobic capacity and, and your, uh, you know, anaerobic capacity. Um, so the, the, yeah, the, the, the interval training is going to 
be kind of neutral. So everyone's doing the same intervals and they're, they're all fed. Um, and we'll see, I mean, the, the fat adaptation, uh, the, the fat burning adaptations, I mean, how will those change if you're, if you're fed or fasted? Mm -hmm. Is it any different if you're, um, eating the carbs beforehand? And the key, another key point is, um, in these other studies, if you test people in the fasted state, or if you test people in the fed state, that's a big question. If yeah. you test people, if, if someone's been doing fasted training and then you test them in the fasted trait in state, they'll tend to be showing greater fat ad adaptation improvements. Mm. Mm. But in the handful of studies that have tested people in the fed state after this period of training, there's oftentimes no differences. So we want to mm. see in this scenario, we, we're testing people pre and post, but following just a small breakfast, but, but a standardized breakfast. And then we'll see, I mean, are, are people's fat burning adaptations improved from the fasted training? Um, mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if they will be. If I had to guess, um, I, I'd be, it'd be hard to hazard a guess. I actually don't expect, I'm not sure what I expect, but I, I, I'd lean towards them being more similar than different. Okay. Um, so we're, and also like 30 minute time trial power, which is, you know, a key, a key metric. We're going to see how, if that improves yeah. more from fasted training, or yeah. maybe, maybe people can just eat whatever they want before training. <laughs> yes. So with that fasted training uh, kind of arm, are they, um, are they doing everything fasted or the, still the low intensity? Just the low the... intensity, just the four low intensity sessions fasted. And then the intervals they're, they're getting fed. They're... Okay. No, that makes sense. And um, is it cyclists? Cyclists, yeah. Yeah, yeah, cool. and, and, yeah or, I mean, cyclists, triathletes, we, we want people that are fairly well trained. Um, we're looking for people tra that are currently training around 7 to 12 hours per week because, mm. you know, we, one, we, if you take sedentary people, as you know, they're going to get fitter from anything, and so totally. you wouldn't be able to detect any nutrition differences. And mm. then we also need people training about the same amount so that the, the training stimulus is, you know, uh, is comparable. Yeah, and male? Uh, yeah, in this case, males. We do have other studies, though, running right now, a, a running study and a uh, cycling study for females. So yeah. if any females listening and they're interested. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's great. Because I was thinking uh, um, about your studies and thinking someone could, like, I could go and decide I want another PhD and just do the entire thing again on females. females. That would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. that would be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that my husband would be so happy <laughs> for me to do that. But but I tell you what, like, I'm certainly, like, it always sounds like a really good idea in my head. Um, <laughs> so, Jeff... What I'm interested in, like when I think about what you're doing is, you know, a lot of the reason why athletes would choose to to go faster, and this is kind of male and female, and what I found interesting was from your survey, you know, you had a smaller number of women who did faster training than guys. In my practice, almost every woman I talk to had, does faster training. Mm. And if they don't, the reason why they don't is because they've heard women shouldn't do faster training. Yeah. And I think what you your point about how there was a lot of variation between individuals rather than between treatment groups. Yeah. Like you see that time and again in the science with regards to how people respond to nutritional approaches, you know, like everyone is, is super different. But upon saying that though, obviously there was an effect of a particular treatment with what you saw. So there is certainly, you know, it's not like find the individual approach that works for you because we're all going to be different. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so a lot more women do faster training because they think overall they're going, they're actually going to improve their body composition from that. And so, in part, what this research is, what what you found was that they don't influence their fat oxidation that much if they have protein and, and a little bit of fat prior mm -hmm. to training. What I think would be super interesting would be having a look at energy expenditure across a day. And I, I guess mm -hmm. the reason I think this is because you know, relative energy deficiency in sport is something that we yeah. have, you know, it's emerging a lot more in that, um, in our arena for the yeah. endurance athlete. 
and that to go for extended periods of time without food might downregulate metabolism, you know, a whole bunch of, of areas of metabolism, which then overall sort of energy expenditure across a day will probably be quite low, despite the fact that they've done, you mm. know, a two-hour kind of training session. Do yeah. you see sort of an application for uh, eating before training to help sort of offset what we might see um, with regards to reds, and I know this is all speculation because yeah. no, you're not I, studying it. But. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely do. I think that's mm. a big, a big, uh, important applica- application. And one of the things also from the survey that I didn't mention, only about I think um, we asked if people ever do just pro- like a low carb meal before training, and it was only about thirty percent of the time, or thirty percent of people said they would even do it sometimes. So I think it's yeah. a it's a really underutilized um, opportunity for people to just have something. And mm. like you said, yeah. So there's reds. Um, another kind of related area to that, and, um, and I, which I don't think gets enough uh, attention also, is within day energy balance. And that's kind of, yeah. it's kind of t- talked of, uh, you know, as part of that. But for those, you know, people listening that are curious, that, that would mean like, you could balance your calories on a daily basis. But if you did all of your exercise in the morning, and didn't eat anything until dinner and had all your calories dinner, I, you know, that's an extreme example, but that, that wouldn't be a good thing, right? Mm. But a lot of people, they, they wake up and you're in a deficit, a calorie deficit, just because you haven't eaten in eight or 12 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, you do a workout where you could burn 500 to 1,000 calories. And then, you know, a lot of people have like a small breakfast, maybe a muffin, or then they go to work and then they have like a salad at lunch. And then, you know, it start getting that hungry through the afternoons so and start snacking and then dinner and let it rip at dinner. And, you know, that's extremely common. Yeah, and, and, it is. And so um, what that's doing is creating a huge deficit in the morning and a huge surplus in the evening. And um, that's not ideal from a hormone standpoint. Uh, from a body composition standpoint. And so um, that absolutely then, if you've taken either a, f- a full breakfast or, or let's say just a couple hundred calories of protein and some fat before your, your workout, and then after you make sure you get a, a reasonable meal uh, as a recovery meal and then kind of a, a, a hearty lunch, then you're kind of in much more of a balance and you can have a much smaller dinner and still be you know, happily satisfied. Totally. And, you know, just the mood implications, you know, I just think of so many people who go out for massive training sessions and can, you know, just written off for the rest of the day and just think that's this inevitable part of being an athlete. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Um, Jeff, has your research changed what you do personally? Um, Yeah, you know, I actually never really liked fasted training, but I did go through um, to to try the study, like my study protocol. And I was doing fast training. I've tried the protein. Uh, it's made me try the protein before exercise. And it's, it's actually opened me up even to fasted training because I'm one of those people that would be like, oh, I'm, I wake up hungry. I like eating a big breakfast. So thinking about 90 minutes um, of a, a 90-minute endurance ride fasted like sounded terrible to me. But I, I was able to do it. And I realized, oh, you kind of get used to it. And hunger does go away. And it's, it's fine. So it's kind of made me more open from that standpoint. Um, mm-hmm. But I, it's also made me um, less afraid to have like I, I, dates are like my favorite food. Dates and mm-hmm. some peanut butter, dates and almond butter. Delicious. You can pack a lot of carbs in a small punch <laughs> with some dates, as you know. So I would have also thought, okay, I don't want to, quote unquote, ruin the benefit of, let's say, an endurance ride I'm going to do if I jump on the trainer for an hour or whatever by having some some carbs beforehand. But I also, at the same time, think, no, I, that's not, or definitely if I'm going to do an interval workout or something, I, I don't believe I'm going to, quote unquote, ruin those benefits either. So it's mm. it's really made me more open. Um, yeah, I guess it's, it's kind of less precious. You know, it, it, it'd be nice as a you know you're a practitioner to say you have the perfect answer and make it so precious you have to do exactly this and a lot of people unfortunately make their living by making it so precious yeah. and and you know really it probably matters less and you know I, I feel I feel like I'm betraying our, our dietitians uh, by saying 
things that it's not to say it doesn't food doesn't matter, but um, it, it's it's made me start to think. Okay, you have more flexibility um, than uh, some people like to let on. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I remember a few years ago there was someone who worked with high performance sport who made their athletes that they worked with have like consume within five minutes, consume mm. like five gummy lollies, and then <laughs> twelve minutes later they would have their protein. You know, it was it was that specific. But of course, as a as that practitioner, it sort of gives you that voice of authority. Exactly. That, yeah. That, someone gets from their doctor when they say take these two tablets you know and half an hour before breakfast and some people example. want that and some people feel mm. better and more comforted knowing okay i have to do this at five minutes and then at 12 minutes i have to do this and it, it is a source of comfort and so i struggle with how how much it's it but it's a, i believe a placebo effect so I, I you know that that level of of authority i guess um so i, I do struggle with that just when you just say so oh it doesn't matter see whenever it's not that they it's not you you do you seem to lose authority or make it seem like it doesn't care when the next practitioner is saying oh you have to do exactly completely this. Yeah, and it's all about reading your client, right? So if yeah. I have a client, like, and I guess this just speaks to the art and science of nutrition, mm, you know, right. and, you know, and I often see this in, you know, for any new practitioners kind of getting out there, they're trying really hard to sort of make sure that they, they dot all the I's and cross all yeah. the T's. And so yeah. I, I notice this in new practitioners, they're going to be a lot more kind of specific. And I think that's great, you know, and, and a lot of what we're sort of discussing is more, it it comes with experience, I think, yeah. and having the confidence to go, we don't know that. Because actually, yeah. like, as you've just pointed out, like all the things that we thought we sort of, you know, <laughs> yeah. we knew, you're studying now because we actually don't yeah. know, you know. Right. Um, so it certainly is an art and a science. You know, Jeff, before I, so my claim to fame, you won't know this about me, but I won the Rotorua Marathon in oh, wow. 2005. Amazing. Um, it was amazing. I was very fortunate that not a lot of uh, no disrespect intended oh. to who was there, but you know, it was just a very. Yeah, but it was, don't be dis that's disrespecting yourself too. Don't sell yourself short. Oh, you can only I'm, beat who's in front of you. That is true. Um, the what I had for breakfast that day was five bread buns. You know those supermarket bread buns with jam. A spirulina smoothie, and if you've ever looked at the back of them, they've got about fifty grams of carbs and and a banana and. That is the only time I've ever eaten that much food in one uh, one sitting. Uh. I felt immediately ill, but I had like <laughs> I had like about an hour before the race start. So by the time the race start was uh, the, the time I was sort of lining up, it was fine. But actually, what you've just told me, and what of course I know now, probably wouldn't have made that much difference to my overall. Uh, or maybe uh, well, performance. I mean, it's probably good. I mean, your liver was as, as high as it probably could have been, as long as that lingering <laughs> nausea didn't affect you. But I mean, it probably certainly couldn't hurt. I mean, if you're thinking of it, from, I wouldn't have think it from a bad standpoint. I think that's a, a fine race meal. Again, as long as it didn't make you feel too yeah. full or, or bloated or something. But um, yeah. from a carb standpoint, yeah, I think that's fantastic. It, actually, it was amazing, and I really enjoyed it. I can't imagine eating that much now, but that's what you do, when you, you know, when you're young. Yeah. Um, so, Jeff, your studies running now. Um, yeah. Any other take homes or any other key points that have come from your research now, or what can we what can we expect moving forward? Like, yeah, yeah. I think the, I think the key points are are you know we it's it's been well established that if you're if you're fasted, you will burn more fat during exercise. Um, mm. than if you've eaten a carb carb breakfast, mm. except for the, at high intensities, it probably won't matter much. But for for endurance exercise, um, that's that's well known, and we certainly have added more evidence to that. But for those that want to still burn fat and want to eat, having the protein is it you know that is a tool that you can use, and I, I mm. encourage people to try it to see how they like it. Um, mm. Some people might 
not want to be that full or might not like it, but it's certainly, it's an option for you. Mm. Um, and you won't inhibit any fat. Now, if you're one of those people that, again, are thinking about the performance, if you're doing a short workout, it doesn't really matter what you eat. Again, as long as you're comfortable, but um, don't feel like you have to eat if you're doing an interval workout, um, you know, unless, again, you're in the context of someone who's training a lot and let's say more than, maybe more than 10, 12 hours per week. Mm. Um, so I think that that's what we kind of can take from, from those other, um, from the last study. And then this current study is hoping to answer you know, some of these questions that people assume, you know, and then that is, doesn't matter really over time. Um, I guess there's a difference. We didn't really talk about this, but, um, you know, just a slight difference acutely fasted training there, you know, it, it is going through more of your intramuscular triglycerides. There's some different stuff happening acutely when you're fasted training compared to if you've eaten. So if you want to burn more fat, um, there might be some other benefit to burning, to burning more fat during a workout besides just, you know, burning fat off your waistline or mm. being, becoming a better fat burner. Those are the two things people think of mostly, but th there actually may be utility that's, that's not those things. So with that said, you know, I, I think it's not the worst thing to do faster workout if, again, if, if, it, if it's in the right context. And then moving forward, yeah, I mean, we're hoping to just kind of explore what the things that really matter, you know, what yeah. matters and, 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 and the, the levers we can move um, as practitioners and athletes to, to get the stuff that, to, I guess, I guess to, to, to weed through the things that don't matter, like if you have, um, this meal or that meal before a workout, it, if it doesn't have affect your long-term training, then we don't need to be uh, obsessing over it. Other things mm -hmm. certainly do affect things. We want to kind of figure out what, what are the things that matter and what are the things that maybe, you know, people are putting too much um, undue uh, influence on. Yeah, nice. And it's interesting what you say about the fasted training with regards to benefits outside of just the here and now and the athlete performance and, and stuff. I spoke to Mark Mapson a couple mm. of weeks ago, and um, he's an advocate for fasted training because the exercise in that fasted state upregulates a lot of the health benefits that people see mm. from actually just doing that fasting um, uh, uh, yeah. themselves. Yeah. So I suppose that's maybe what you were. Yeah. Part, part, to. Yeah, definitely. I think some mm. things like that. And he's, he certainly knows what he's talking about. He's a, he's, he's done, uh, he's has a body of amazing work. Um, yeah. Uh, just kind of think of it like if, if you're turning over different fuels, you know, the, mm. the intramuscular triglycerides, you might be just kind of turning over a little bit differently than, than, um, if you had eaten. Yeah. Now are you, you're measuring oxidative stress as well, aren't you? We did in the last study, uh, yeah. and there was really no difference. And so we were able to save a whole lot of money and, and not analyze it in the next study because it's super expensive. Yeah, um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, just and as a quick background for, for, for people, uh, yeah, you know, the, the signaling that happens in response to exercise, again, part of that is due to the oxidative stress is those serve as the signaling things to tell your body, hey, let's, let's get fitter, let's get stronger. Mm. Um, and so... It was plausible and think, okay, well, could what you eat affect that oxidative stress? And there's a lot of different measures for that. We picked one that was, you know, a kind of a well-established good marker of it, um, isoprostanes, but uh, we found no difference from the different treatments uh, on mm. exercise-induced oxidative stress. It's not to mm. say that it doesn't, definitely doesn't make a difference, but in this case, it didn't, didn't seem to make, uh, to, to change anything. So we're not, again, not going to look at that in the training study. Yeah, interesting. And and I guess you're right from a budgeting perspective. Yeah. It's a bit of a win, really. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Hey, Jeff, so can you please tell people where they can find you? Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, I suppose the easiest place would be uh, Twitter, I suppose. Yep. Um, eat, sleep, fit, Jeff. And so my, my, my personal website um, is eatsleep.fit. Nice. So I guess you could certainly meet me, uh, find me through there. Uh, if you're interested 
at all in, in the study, if it sounds, you, you know, if you'd like to just learn a little bit more about what we're doing, um, you can get me through Twitter or um, do, do you have show notes that you can? Absolutely. And we'll put all yeah, of these so put annual a, research in, in the show notes. And you also do see some clients too, Jeff. Uh, yeah. Yeah. If, awesome. if, uh, if that sounds, uh, yeah, you can see, see all that through eatsleep.fit, the website there. Perfect. Jeff, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, and I really look forward to seeing just, you know, what comes of your next study. Awesome. Well, I'll share it. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff. Bye. Alrighty, so hopefully you enjoyed that and as I said a lot of Jeff's recommendations to date I've been putting into my own recommendations for athletes and if you jumped on and signed up to my athlete nutrition plan you would notice that the pre-training nutrition advice stems from what Jeff has, has found and it's you know protein, bit of fat just before training uh, to help fuel the workout and prevent being in a deficit at the start of the day so you know this is such valuable research guys because it's directly translatable into real life and clinical situations which is just what you want from research right you can find jeff at www.eatsleep.fit which is also his handle on twitter and instagram you could also email him directly at aut at j-r-o-t-h-s-c-h at a-u-t dot a-c dot n-z next week on the podcast i bring to you my conversation i have with brianna stubbs who would be one of the world experts in ketone metabolism and utilization and so we go into the sort of nuts and bolts around the utility of using ketone supplements in terms of exercise in addition to chatting to Brianna about her own background and how her athletic endeavors sort of got her into looking at fuel utilization and the use of exogenous ketones and whether or not you know she follows a keto diet herself and you might be surprised by what she has to say about that uh, and a whole host of other things so I'm really sure that you will enjoy that interview as much as you did Jeff's until then though you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition on Twitter and Instagram at Mickey Willardin also over on my website mickeywillardin.com where you can sign up to Monday's Matter, to my athlete plan or my real food nutrition plan or the recipe access or just book in a consultation. I look forward to hearing from you and until next week, have a great week team already. Bye bye.